COVID-19 is rampaging in the United States and around the world. Hospitals have run out of intensive care beds in multiple cities and towns. Today, we'll talk about COVID-19, COVID vaccines, a healthcare system dominated by capitalism and capitalists. We will talk about the political campaign against vaccinations and mask wearing. We will talk about vaccine imperialism that has prevented vast parts of Africa and the developing world from gaining access to vaccines while the dominant imperialist countries have an abundance. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Real Story on The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. I'm joined today by Eugene Perrier. Eugene is the host of the podcast, The Punch-Out. He is also the host of the weekly live show, The Freedom Side on Breakthrough News, which airs every Thursday on youtube.com forward slash breakthrough news at 3 p.m. Eastern. Eugene, welcome back to the show. Well, Brian, I'm always honored to be here, and I really appreciate you having me back on. Yeah, thank you so much. Eugene, the reason I really wanted to talk with you about this topic is that I heard your punch out, your podcast that you do every day. It came from uh, last Friday, just about a week ago, where you talked about the campaign that was directed uh, against vaccinations or against mask wearing. And some parts of the campaigners, not everyone, but some parts of them are making and have been making the argument that a substantial part of the African-American population shares their opposition to vaccinations or mask wearing, et cetera. In other words, to sort of have as a, as a support, as a prop for their position that, quote, black people support their position. And and you did a very effective critique of that argument. And in fact, I thought it was so effective. It's 14 minutes long. As part of my interview and discussion and conversation with you today, I want to play those 14 minutes. I think everyone who can hear your presentation should hear your presentation. Uh, it's comprehensive. It's persuasive. And unfortunately, Eugene, it's not on CNN. Mm. It's not on MSNBC. It's not in the, you know, the mainstream corporate-owned media because actually if you, a, a voice like yours making the arguments that you made, if that were presented on the mainstream media, it would be a hundred times more effective than any of the presentations I've heard by CDC, White House staff, and certainly by the representatives of Big Pharma. Let me just ask you first, before we get started, what compelled you to do this particular podcast? Well, 
you know, first of all, thank you so much for, uh, you, you know, your, your being willing to play it and also uh, everything you said about it. But yeah, I, I think a few things compelled me to do it. I think the thing that was really most important from my perspective was, and the title of it I used is, is or part of the title was that people are essentially using the black population as a human shield. And I was becoming increasingly frustrated and upset to see people who are pushing these arguments around vaccinations that rather than using any of the you know, facts. Of course, there are no real facts to support their position that people shouldn't be vaccinated. We're trying to somehow associate this position of anti-vaccine, the anti-vaccine movement, whatever we want to call it, with the black liberation movement. And that to me felt so egregious on so many levels, but particularly because a huge piece of the black struggle in the United States has been for healthcare equity. And one of the main reasons behind, I think, some of the hesitancy in the Black community is the long history that exists in this country of the health concerns of Black Americans not being treated as a serious issue, whether it be issues of pain, uh, the high maternal death rate, and all of these other issues. And the struggle for health equity has been so central to the broader Black liberation movement in this country. And it seems to me, when you look at the reality of COVID-19, which was the number one killer of black people in the United States in the past year, it was laying out once again for the whole world to see the fact that there is not only a huge lack of public health in many of the working class and the black community in America is majority working class. There's very little public health in these communities. There's very little access to primary care in these communities. There is an excess of comorbidities in the black community because of things like food deserts and all of the other corporate products that drive up rates of high hypertension and diabetes and all these other terrible diseases that made the black population, in fact, more susceptible to dying from COVID-19 in the first place. So if anything, we need to be raising our voices about that and about how the disproportionate deaths of black working class people during the COVID-19 pandemic is a, once again an exposure of U.S. capitalism and how deeply racist it truly is. And it felt like such a disgusting inversion to me of that reality for people to be trying to say, well, you shouldn't get the vaccine or you don't need the vaccine or we shouldn't be pushing on on people because it's bad for the black population. And that's why they're allegedly not getting it. And as we'll hear that in and of itself um, is, is a total falsehood. But to me, it just felt like such a diversion from the important and critical issues that we need to be talking about, which is the disproportionate negative health outcomes of so many people in the black community because of the callousness of the government that has defunded so many of these communities on all social services and also just the rampant corporate criminals that do everything possible to push the most unhealthy types of foods and living standards on the black population. So to me, it felt particularly important for that. And then I'll just say subsequently, it also felt important because the reality is because of all of this propaganda and outright lies by many people about the vaccines themselves and what's going on, that it was important for me to use the platform that I had to also speak directly to other members of our community, of the black community, and really everyone in this country who's potentially hesitant about the vaccines, about these issues, about the dangers, and about the fact that there are certainly, and we'll get into this, I'm sure, in this show, many contradictions because the capitalist state has made it, for many people, especially a lot of working people, you know, not as easy as they say it is to get the vaccine. People have some legitimate concerns, but that 
if people don't get vaccinated, these long-term health inequities will continue. Racism in the healthcare system will continue in a way that will be massively deadly because of how deadly we know COVID-19 is. So those were some of the things that were motivating me to, to, to get out and to, to really put this piece together. One of the realities is that this has become a very politicized issue. So the issue or the, the topic of vaccines or not, uh, of mask wearing or not, it's dovetailed with a larger political campaign. Now, the political campaign isn't only from the right. There's also forces on the left, whatever that means. And I think it's, you know, at this point means less and less. These, the label of the left or the liberals or whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. But the right wing has been the dominant movement against the vaccines. And of course, because they're doing everything to bring down Biden, who's a Democrat, their basic approach is the way the Republicans approached Obama when he was elected in 2008, which was, as Mitch McConnell said at the time, we don't want him to succeed. So no matter what Obama did, the Republicans were going to do the opposite. If Donald Trump was president right now, if he had narrowly won the Electoral College as he did in 2016, he was an advocate of the vaccines. I'm quite sure that some of the political uproar in Congress would not be there, at least from the Republican Party. Perhaps more Democrats would do it. Anyway, two weeks ago, Representative Jim Jordan, a very prominent right-wing Republican from Ohio, tweeted that vaccine mandates were, quote, un-American. This was after Biden had made a, a more expansive vaccine mandate call. In reality, Eugene, vaccine mandates are very much a part of the U.S. reality and U.S. history. And also there has been opposition to vaccine mandates as part of that tradition. I mean, I'm thinking back to 1898 to 1903, uh, smallpox was ravaging, ravaging the country. And there was the beginning of, of vaccines and ultimately a vaccine mandate in Boston, the last big upsurge of smallpox. As a consequence of the final decision by the municipal authorities in Boston, everybody was vaccinated. They, I mean, authorities went door to door. It wasn't an option. But there was the league against compulsory vaccinations. And the arguments were either that the vaccines were not efficacious, not effective, they were unsafe, or very importantly, as an echo of what we hear now, that they were stripping Americans of their individual liberties because, of course, vaccines or vaccine mandates do have the impact of regulating personal behavior. Now, when I was a kid, there was another big vaccination campaign. It was polio. Polio also was ravaging the country. But I can remember as a child and all the people who were children in that time, say in the late 1950s or early 1960s, we all got in line and we got vaccinated. The whole country got vaccinated. And polio, which, again, was a scourge, like smallpox, was eliminated. The vaccines actually worked. Now, in order to overcome the vaccine opposition that the government and authorities experienced in 1903 for smallpox, the U.S. actually set about to create a nonprofit organization called the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis, it's now called the March of Dimes. People might be more familiar with that. To be the entity that was both raising money for and paying for and distributing the vaccine because so many people in the United States 
were hostile to the capitalist pharmaceutical companies that the U.S. government at that time said, well, let's convince them that it's not for profit. It'll be done by what is now called the March of Dimes. And as a consequence, I think this was a big factor, in fact, in terms of people not having as much opposition to getting vaccinated because they so fear that the pharmaceutical companies only care about profit. And they're not wrong to think about that. No, I think that's a very good point. I mean, you look at what's happening at Pfizer is could make anywhere from about you know, $15 billion to $30 billion. I think they made about $900 million in profit in the first quarter alone off of the Pfizer vaccine. Moderna, I think, is is on their earnings call, said they're expecting about $18 billion. Someone have to fact check me there. But I mean, you know, they're making somewhere between $15 and $30 billion, both of them. And when you look at the earnings reports for both companies, you can see that it just goes up and up and up. Like last December, they were supposed to make less money, and then it just seems there's more and more money involved in it. And I think people people are right, in my view, to be relatively skeptical. I mean, there's no doubt that the pharmaceutical companies are are all about profit. That is more or less all that they care about. Now, you know, whether or not that would drive them to do something that could potentially poison you, given the sort of market realities is a different question. But I say all that just to say that there's a difference between skepticism and denial. There's a difference between trying to make sure you have all the facts and completely ignoring the facts. And that is the situation that we really have here, I think. But I do think that you're 100% correct that the way that this has been rolled out, I mean, for instance, it's I think most people probably don't know the Moderna vaccine was basically developed by the public sector. It was almost totally paid for by the U.S. government. Uh, a lot of the initial research came from the NIH, including a black woman who was one of the main scientists who was involved in the project. Project. So anyway, long story short, though, I think just to go back to your original point, you are correct that part of the challenge here is that this has been rolled out as such a private sector style uh, program rather than something that's like a major public social public health effort that it has raised people's concerns about whether or not it's being rushed or it's being pushed for profit reasons rather than public health reasons. So again, I think that in a way, it's both natural and healthy for people to say, well, hold on, let's get all the facts here. But once we get the facts on the table, then it very much becomes clear. Yes, these companies are making a huge amount of money. There's no doubt about it. Everything that they have done in terms of negotiating with the government has, in fact, been to make even more money. And there was quite a bit of conversation about this towards the end of last year in the public health community about whether or not the U.S. government was essentially just being taken and that the prices that were being quoted by Pfizer and Moderna were you know, essentially just made up prices in order for them to make huge profits, not anything related to what it really cost. And we know that that's how pretty much all pharmaceuticals are priced. But at the end of the day, that doesn't actually affect the facts on the ground in terms of uh, what's moving forward. But it just shows yet again that we have no real strong system of public health in this country. I mean, just the fact that there are so many people unvaccinated speaks to that in and of itself, because quite frankly, in many of the countries where vaccinations go fast that have national healthcare services, people are already plugged into the healthcare system. They have doctors who they trust and so on and so forth. Here, tens of millions of people, even many people with health insurance, they don't have primary care physicians. They're not plugged into the healthcare system whatsoever. They can't easily be reached by outreach workers. There aren't easy and clear ways for them to get their questions answered about what's going on. I mean, the fact that you basically have to Google it to get the answers to your questions about what's going on with the vaccines, to me, in and of itself, speaks to the fact uh, of, of how just decrepit the U.S. healthcare system is. And if we go back to the original issue of COVID-19, I mean, this was the issue with the comorbidity 
comorbidities, which was one of the reasons why the, the virus hit us so hard is there are so many of us who are, and I'm not, I don't want to say people, so many of all of us who are relatively unhealthy and who aren't getting enough health care because of the cost, because of the lack of public education about what we should be doing, how often we should see a doctor, all these different sorts of pieces, which made us more vulnerable in the first place. So I think there is, is absolutely a critique to be made here, not just of the vaccine rollout, but the entire relationship between the COVID-19 response to the privatized healthcare system in the United States, why the response has been so poor, why so many people died, and why so many people are skeptical about whether or not these vaccines that are in fact safe and do in fact work uh, are you know, perhaps not what they say they are. Indeed. I mean, just imagine Cuba, Cuba struggling and, and, and creating its own vaccines. The people in Cuba will undoubtedly trust their doctors and nurses because and they'll be the ones to administer the vaccines. They, they know them uh, at every CDC, the Committees in Defense of the Revolution. There's a, a doctor or a doctor and nurse or a nurse. There's healthcare professionals there 24 seven. Everybody knows everybody. Uh, the doctor's always in, basically. So the real problem in, in Cuba or the problem in Africa, where only 3% of people in Africa have been vaccinated. Uh, and again, you have you know 65% vaccination in the UK, 53% vaccination in the United States. The problems in the developing world the develop, and the problems in the formerly colonized world is that the pharmaceuticals are hoarding the vaccine or the governments in these countries uh, are hoarding those vaccines and people just don't have access. I mean, the, the oddity here is that people in Africa and in so many countries in the world are dying to get the vaccine and are dying because they can't get the vaccine. And yet in the United States, the, the issue is all about is the government you know, doing the wrong thing is the government by having a quote vaccine mandate or a vaccine passport. Is it, you know, violating people's personal rights? I mean, the difference here between the so-called third world and the so-called first world couldn't be more stark. No, I think that's 100% true. You know, the Associated Press a few weeks back had an interesting article from Uganda interviewing people who were showing up to get the vaccine and were basically too late. And a, a shopkeeper was basically saying, well, I'm just going to keep coming back every day until we get it. And, and I think that when you really look at what's happening, I mean, it's absolutely criminal. And the other criminal element of it is how it's being reported. There are many, many stories that will cite X country or X company has pledged X number of vaccines. The European Union um, just pledged the day before this show is airing uh, that they're going to send another 250 million vaccines on top of what they'd already pledged. But when you start to dig into it, almost none of these pledges have been even close to fulfilled. The public sector pledges are a little bit better than the private sector pledges. But what you see very quickly is that people will say, oh, we're going to give 100 million vaccine doses. And nine months later, you know, no one knows where they are, what's happened, and they only sort of trickle, it's trickle down, and there's political reasons why these things are happening. While you've got companies like Pfizer that in both South Africa and Brazil has been hit with serious accusations that they are, you know, essentially preventing people from buying it by making these, you know, extravagant demands, not only on the price. I think in South Africa, they wanted them to put up like embassy buildings as collateral. So there's all these different elements to it that have created this vaccine apartheid. And, you know, there is, I think, another sort of 
rumor that somehow people don't want the vaccine in the the, the developing world, the so-called third world. I mean, you know, and whether or not South Africa should fit in that, I, I don't know, but I just want to use this example. I mean, there have been marches of tens of thousands of people in South Africa demanding more vaccines. Obviously, if you look at a country like Brazil or like India, which have been totally ravaged, almost every major progressive movement is aggressively pushing for more vaccinations. In fact, I mean, the entire thrust of the opposition to Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil right now, that's being led by the landless workers movement, by the Workers Party of Brazil, by uh, groups like PESOL, that's another left-wing political party, is around this issue of the vaccines and public health and raising the issue that Bolsonaro has been criminal, almost genocidal in his complete and total just non-response to COVID-19, and that it speaks to his deeper right-wing, anti-people, anti-working class, anti-poor policies, and they're demanding more vaccines and a stronger public health system in Brazil, national health care, and it's brought tens, hundreds of thousands into the streets multiple times in just the past few months. Pedro Castillo, who, as many people saw, uh, became president of Peru, left-wing president. Peru, very tragically, has been one of the hardest-hit countries on earth by COVID-19, 600 some odd people per 100,000 dying, which is one of the highest uh, rates in Latin America and around the world. Pedro Castillo, no mistaking him for a right winger, definitely a left wing person. He made one of the big points of his campaign. We're going to get these vaccines. We're going to get them out. In fact, he was actually sort of trolling his opponent during the race, meeting with uh, different officials saying he already had it lined up to bring in these Chinese vaccines, millions of them. And in fact, I was looking over this past weekend and youth leaders in Peru Libre, Free Peru, his party are talking, are showing themselves, taking photos, saying, hey, we're getting vaccinated right now. And this shows that this government is committed to public health and to helping people. The same is true of the Union of Hope that unfortunately could not uh, prevail in Ecuador this year, but was making a big deal of the vaccines as a part of their major progressive campaign there to try to reseize the presidency. And so it's similar to sort of the lies that are being told about black people in the United States, that people don't want the vaccine in the developing world. It's all part of a smokescreen that's being created by individuals who don't want to actually confront the reality of the public health crisis we're in and the fact that it is disproportionately killing poor and working class people on every part of this globe. And in fact, that who that is who is the most uh, uh, at risk here. But I think when you look at it, whether we're talking about the organizations I've mentioned, uh, groups like NUMSA, the largest union in South Africa, all the progressive forces around the world and the developing world are aggressively challenging their own governments to be more aggressive in terms of procuring vaccines, bringing in stronger public health measures, and bringing in stronger nationalized, publicly paid for healthcare so that when the next pandemic comes around or any other disease or healthcare challenge people have, they're able to use it in a much better way. But of course, this vaccine apartheid is maybe one of the biggest threats to the globe right now, in my view, because the longer you have larger unvaccinated populations, the more variants develop, the more opportunity there is for a variant that is totally vaccine resistant to come forward. And then, you know, we're all going to be in a, in a much more difficult spot. It speaks so much to what the real focus and the real demands of the genuine left in the United States should be. And in my mind, Eugene, uh, the real demands should be to nationalize and internationalize control over all of these pharmaceutical products. I mean, the idea that there's a vaccine apartheid, the fact that the CEOs of the biggest pharmaceutical companies could get like, I mean, I could go over with you and maybe we'll have time, like the staggering 
uh, increases in their salaries and in their individual wealth in the last 18 months. I mean, it's truly staggering. These companies need to become public property. And by public property, I mean not simply the property of the United States, but the property of the people of the world so that the vaccines are accessible to the people in the world. I'm looking at the website Health Affairs. You can go to healthaffairs.org. I want to just read a little bit about how these companies are, in fact, completely paid for by us, by we, the people. And yet the private ownership both allows personal profit and the profit for the capitalists to go higher and higher. And for them to have the power to decide who gets and who does not get the vaccine. And those calculations are based on their own greed, their own avarice, their own wealth, and their own needs as a capitalist corporation to maximize profits. Here it is, healthaffairs.org. Jeffrey Harris recently reported that between 2000 and 2019, $15.3 billion was spent on HIV vaccine research. 80% of this was paid for by the federal government, an additional 11% by so-called philanthropy. In terms of COVID, likewise, BARDA, B-A-R-D-A, has for years invested in the messenger RNA or mRNA platform for vaccine development, the technology used in Pfizer and Moderna COVID-19 vaccines. Now get this. Since 2006, Congress has appropriated hundreds of millions of dollars that BARDA used to develop the scientific infrastructure to produce vaccines in response to the threat of pandemic flu. Thus, the basic research undergirding the COVID-19 vaccines was largely, largely, in the main, manufactured at public expense. Vaccine companies who face normally, you know, risk when they're scaling up for manufacturing, they face risk if the, if the product doesn't work. They were exempted from all of that. The U.S. government covered the risks and paid the bills. For example, the government issued a $53 million contract to build manufacturing capacity to Moderna in May 2020. Overall, the government's manufacturing expenditures included contracts for more than $100 million to develop manufacturing capacity, plus $3 billion to spend on contract manufacturers. I mean, when you think of what the government, meaning the public expenditure is, and that these the, the intellectual property rights, so-called, the patent for the medicine, the secret recipe for the vaccines, that's held privately by these capitalists. Our demand should be against the capitalists, not against those who are trying to put into place common sense health policy issues. Well, I think that's a great point that you make there, Brian. And I think the most important thing about what you said at the, is, in a way is the end is that, you know, this... You, Whatever the forces are involved and however we criticize the rollout, things like masks, things like vaccines, the mandates behind them, quarantines, I mean, these are common sense public health measures that have been deployed for many, many, many years. And so I think it's important for people to know this isn't just brought up out of thin air, but I agree with you 100%. I mean, you know, you look at the pharmaceutical companies between 2016 and 2020, they spent $56 billion more on stock buybacks than research. Now, of course, they always say, well, we have to spend all this money on research. It's the only way that we can uh, bring these drugs out that are helping people. But if you spend $56 billion shoveling it into the pockets of Wall Street, big-time Wall Street investors over R&D, it exposes that totally as a lie. And I think the point you made in the excerpt you read there is critical. You know, the Institute's 
the National Institute for Health. I mean, all these different public sector programs where people do great work because a lot of the work that goes into vaccines and new medicines is around the sort of basic technologies, biotechnologies that undergird a lot of them that aren't immediately profitable and thus are not the types of things that are going to be carried out by private business. I mean, that's why right now you've got the Congress of the United States saying we're going to provide more money for these breakthrough cures and things like that, because at the end of the day, if it's not immediately profitable or immediately clear how it will be profitable, the big fine pharmaceuticals don't really spend that much money looking into it, despite their lies uh, to the contrary. But I agree with you 100% in terms of what the demand should be. I mean, from the from day one, from day one of COVID-19, it's been so clear that the culprit and the criminal is capitalism. I mean, why, if we look at what's happened around the world, and especially if we look at the vanguard countries in terms of protecting their populations, which tend to be the socialist countries of this world, China, Vietnam, Venezuela, by the way, who's getting almost no credit despite having one of the best records in Latin America, what you can see, and you know, you could also say this is true to a lesser extent in countries like Australia, New Zealand, New Zealand especially, is that they immediately applied a very aggressive quarantine policy in terms of COVID-19. But of course, here in the United States, there was so much hesitancy from Democrats and Republicans because they recognized, well, if we shut the economy down, that means we actually are going to have to pay people to stay home, which ultimately means that we're going to have to do something for people and we're not going to we're not going to do that. In the United States there was not a willingness to put in place the social supports that would be necessary to have nipped this thing in the bud right away. I mean, you know, I don't want to be too counterfactual, but I think the reality of it is had they put sort of Vietnam style, Chinese style quarantines where everything you needed was paid for, so you definitely didn't have to leave the house, everyone was able to stay home. I, I you, who knows how many people would have died, but it certainly wouldn't be 600 some odd thousand I think it would have been many, 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 many less when you look at China, which is the world's largest country, which I mean, you know, it's I think there's I'm not even going to get into it. The point is clear when you look at the numbers of who's dead and who isn't. It's tragic. It's criminal. But it's obviously that the capitalist system and the the politicians who are fronting for it were unwilling to do what was necessary because they didn't want to. I think and it's not just that they didn't want to stop the capitalist economy. I think it's that they didn't want to prove to everyone that, in fact, you don't need capitalism to survive and that it is, in fact, possible to take care of people in a way that makes sense and is logical if the political will is there, even if it goes against the dictates of the quote-unquote market, that we can think beyond the quote-unquote capitalist market to a different type of future that's people-centered, not profit-centered. I think that's a dangerous idea. And I think, honestly, that's the idea that's at the root of putting public health before everything else in the context of a pandemic like this. And I think, honestly, and I spoke to it again but uh, earlier, but I want to speak to it again. I mean, just the fact that things hit this country so hard because of so many, I mean, you know, the word's fallen out of, of use now, but I think we can all remember in May and June, you were hearing the word comorbidity constantly. But why is it that there are so many comorbidities in capitalism? It doesn't value the health of human beings. It only values the work you can do to create profit for big corporations. And so we are unnaturally unhealthy. I mean, the way we live and the way we are forced to live is unnaturally unhealthy. And it is that way because these corporations have so much power and such an ability 
to limit common sense public health measures when it comes to the foods we eat, to all the different things that we're ingesting, to the water that we're drinking, to the chemicals that are pumped into the air, uh, and all these different ways that create so many problems for so many people. I mean, the disproportionate rate of asthma in so many black working class communities around this country that obviously is the type of thing that can have a huge impact when you have respiratory diseases, that is not by accident. It's because of the pollution and the environmental racism that exists in so many of these communities. And so really, when we talk Talk about having a public health system, universal health care of putting people's health before people's profits. We're really talking about doing something very different than capitalism. And I think that is where so many of the vaccine critics, where I just don't understand where they're coming from at all. The idea that somehow the government should be doing less to save people's lives, to make people more healthy, it makes no sense to me. Why our demands are not to do more? I mean, when you look at this issue of the ICUs that are being completely flooded, you've got people dying from other things because they can't get into an ICU because there's too many COVID patients there. Why are all the ICUs so full? Well, one of the reasons is there are a lot of COVID patients, but another reason is because the for-profit healthcare system says that empty beds are not profitable and they make sure that every hospital has the least number of beds that there are, including ICU beds. I, I mean, this is completely criminal in the way that it's playing out. But why would we not be demanding more of this? Why would we not be demanding that the government pay people's salaries, pay their rent, pay their utilities, pay whatever childcare, whatever else is there so that people are able to stay home and quarantine if they are sick? Why are we not demanding the government cover the cost of people's health care from beginning to end? I mean, why are we not trying to construct a system out of this pandemic, which is revealing to us, just like climate change has revealed to us, how the decrepit decay of the capitalist imperialist system is threatening the very existence of humanity. Why would we not be looking to envision a different type of world that pushes back against this? Why would we actually be looking to lapse back into allowing people to be killed? I mean, allowing people to die en masse. It makes no sense to me. Yeah. Eugene, you and I are talking together here in New York City. I went to Chinatown last week. I went to the restaurant and, uh, in New York City, you have to have a you have to show that you've been vaccinated to get in. Now, in some of the some of the places I went into in Midtown Manhattan, it was a very cursory look at whether you really had your vaccination card. But in Chinatown, the workers there were like, "No, show me your ID." They looked at the ID, they looked at the vaccination card. They wanted to make sure that I was the person who got the vaccination. I mean, these are people who have to go to work every day. They want to work in a safe environment. They don't want to die. They don't want to get sick. They don't want to come home and make their children or their elderly parents sick. So they take the vaccination card as a matter, like a worker on any worker who's, who's concerned about health and safety, like, you know, the whole struggle for health and safety, which was in the past a non-issue. And I thought like, how can you how can people stand outside especially people who don't have to go to work every day people who don't have to go become the essential workers are not running around delivering our food or driving amazon packages or working in these you know restaurants that are crowded and filled with people how can they say like oh this is taking away my liberty if you mandate that i have to have a vaccination to go into the restaurant or into any place i mean from the point of view of class solidarity and being with the working class, especially those who actually couldn't stay home. And, you know, there was a big class divide between people who could stay home, who could work remotely, and people who had to go to work. I mean, 
what I want to ask the people who are saying the most important thing right now is about mask mandates and, and how they take away our liberties or, or cherry-picking information to show why they don't work. Uh, I mean, the question is, are we in a healthcare crisis or not? I mean, four, 40 million people in the United States have gotten COVID. Four million of them have gotten sick in the recent weeks. As you mentioned, Eugene, in Kentucky, for instance, the largest portion of the population hospitalized for COVID-19 in the country is in Kentucky. Nationally, 29 of every 100,000 people are in a hospital for COVID-19. In Kentucky, and it's not an accident that it's in Kentucky, the figure is 57, 57, almost double. The head medical official at a, at a primary Kentucky hospital said, quote, I'm reading from a news report, he has no idea what his facility will do Friday, that would be tomorrow, when it loses a team of emergency medical employees sent by the federal government, highlighting the fragile balancing act that the healthcare facilities across the country are facing under a surge in coronavirus cases. Quote, this is the doctor, the guy in charge of the department, chief medical officer, William Mella, uh, that's St. Clair Healthcare Hospital in Moorhead, Kentucky. He said, the only reason... We are holding this lifeboat together as I have a federal disaster medical assistance team here, 14 people who have been heroes to us, but the mandate for their deployment ends Friday, that's tomorrow. I'm going to lose 14 healthcare professionals, and I literally have no idea what we're going to do on Friday when they leave. I mean, that's kind of, I mean, this is somebody who's in the trenches trying to keep people alive. So I want to ask the people whose focus is getting rid of the vaccine mandate or getting rid of masking, uh, is this situation happening or is it not happening? Is this healthcare crisis real or is it made up? If it's unreal, please explain to us how this mirage was created. If it is real, if it's not made up, what should the government do about it or should it do nothing? And Eugene, what you're saying is that these people are basically telling everyone else the government should do nothing or it should do less because their focus is getting rid of the vaccine mandate or the mandate of masking, which may help people avoid COVID. Uh, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. I think you're exactly right. I, I mean, there, there's just so many logical fallacies. I mean, you have people who say, well, if you have a vaccine mandate, most of the unvaccinated people tend to be poor working class people. So the the negative effects of this are going to gonna rebound negatively on working class people. And you just want to take down working class people. You just want bouncers to beat up working class people at the door of restaurants. Well, you know, here's the reality. Working class people have been disproportionately dying from COVID-19. They make up the majority of people who have already died. Of the millions of people who have lost their jobs, lost days of work, lost major income from getting COVID-19, well, they, in fact, 
are primarily working class people. So in fact, the benefits of vaccination are primarily rebounding on working class people because as you said, Brian, they are the people who have to go out every single day. The people who can sit at home and do whatever they want to do, including, by the way, a lot of the people who are out here criticizing the vaccination drive who are typing away from their little home studies and their nice middle class homes are not the people who are getting the primary benefits of vaccination. And there are many issues that we should raise. But if People are right to think, well, what if I miss a day of work because of the side effects? Absolutely legitimate. But why are we then saying that somehow people shouldn't get vaccinated rather than all employers must be required to give people as much time off as they need to recover from the side effects of the vaccine? It really doesn't make any sense why we would demand the former, not the latter. Well, since people, since bosses are evil people and they're going to do whatever they can not to let people have a day off to deal with the vaccine, let's just make sure no one gets vaccinated rather than make sure people have access to a paid sick days Um to the extent they need, not just one or two days. And I think it's one day that's required by the vaccine mandate. That's not enough. It should be as many days as you need. And any employer who violates that should be egregiously cracked down on by uh, for, for hurting the public health of the country by not allowing their workers to get vaccinated. But at the end of the day, the reality is, is the disproportionate uh, uh, toll of this virus has been on those who are the frontline workers, who are the low-wage workers. Those are the people who have, in fact, lost the most jobs because of COVID-19. And so rather than demand that the government do everything it can to buttress those people economically, socially, and from a public health standpoint, you've got anti-vaxxers trying to say this is a reason why people shouldn't get vaccinated. It doesn't really make a lot of sense, but then to go to your point, it all goes down to what you really said. This is a massive public health crisis. I mean, we mandate all sorts of things. Why do you need to have a license to drive a car? And why is it illegal to not wear a seatbelt? Because cars are extremely dangerous. Now, they don't kill anywhere near as many people per year as COVID-19 has already killed. But nevertheless, that's what it is. You need a ID that says you're over 21 to go into a bar. To enroll in any public school in this country, you have to have a range of different shots and immunizations. I mean, we routinely as a society, as we should, require people to do certain things to have the best possible healthcare situation for all of the rest of us. This is not a random idea. It's not a new idea. It's not a crazy idea. It's one that I think just about everyone agrees with, which is that we should do everything we can to try to control the factors we know that will disproportionately hurt other people if it is not uh, you know, put in some sort of controllable way. So there really is no good argument around this. It's It speaks to the capitalist individualism of the United States, the strong libertarian quote unquote strain that exists here that says that everything is really just about me, myself in my own home. And somehow I'm an island like Robinson uh, Caruso or something like that. Uh, I think that's the one, right? The guy who was lost on the island. That's Robinson. Um, yeah. <laughs> that, Marx, that, Marx wrote about him, by the yes, way. Yes. The, the isolated man, as if somehow everything we do isn't connected to other people. And that what's more important than anything else is individual liberty, which, by the way, is an idea that is not eternal. It's an idea rooted in the rise of bourgeois society and capitalism, which is that the most important thing is individual property rights. And the, indiv the rights of the individual was something that came out of the idea of individuals who were owning property 
who were sick and tired of the kings of Europe uh, telling them what they could do, being able to steal and take their wealth at any time, to remove their property, to throw them in jail without any form of due process. And that is really uh, the development of many of these ideas that are at the root of this. But you know, I don't want to get too far on some long thing about the history of Europe, but I think it's important for people to understand that this strain of ideas is not progressive, it's not radical, and it certainly has some things to recommend it in terms of how society has developed over time. It's not like I'm for the divine right of kings, but I think it's important for people to understand that it is a ultimately a, root, a, a set of rights that is rooted in the development of bourgeois property rights and the right of individuals to get rich on the back of the others and for no government to be able to infringe on their right to ac- accumulate wealth uh, over and above anything else. And if we're talking about what we need to do to survive as a species in the context of mass pandemics, this won't be the last one. In the context of global climate change, which is obviously destroying people right now, we really have to think much more carefully about democratic collective rights, about how we act together as a society to make the types of things that uh, we need in order to survive and to have the level of democratic control and transparency for average everyday people to know what's going on, to make those kind of informed decisions and to be able to hold people accountable uh, in leadership positions when they don't uh, uh, speak to that. And I think that's the essence of socialism, quite frankly. And that's what we really mean is evolving beyond these these antiquated ideas of you know the individual man alone on an island and move to the idea of social rights that can you know make us all much safer, much healthier and I think live better lives. Uh, Eugene, I couldn't agree with you more. I I do now want to go to that podcast, which when I heard it, I thought, again, I only wish this podcast was on the corporate-owned mainstream media, not because I like the corporate-owned mainstream media. In fact, I'd like to abolish that too. But uh, the reach of it, the scale of the reach, if tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people could hear the message that you delivered And the way you delivered it, I think it would have a profound impact, much more impactful and much more persuasive than anything I've heard from the capitalist media, the capitalist government, the pharmaceuticals. Anyway, I want to play this clip, and it's 14 minutes long. I think our audience will enjoy every minute of it. You'll learn a lot. And after we hear it, Eugene, I have one follow-up question before we let you go. Let's listen. This is Eugene Prier's daily podcast. You can find it on Breakthrough News. It comes from Friday, September 10th, 14 minutes long. Let's listen. And then one more follow-up question. One of the most persistent pieces of commentary around the issue of vaccines in the United States has been around the issue of racial disparities in terms of who has received the vaccine. In fact, Many vaccine skeptics have been aggressively promoting anecdotal and decontextualized evidence that there is mass opposition among blacks to vaccines over and above any other part of the population to try to bolster their highly irresponsible attempts to justify people not being vaccinated and opposition to common sense public health measures. Well, we are here today to tell you, don't believe the hype. The story around black America and vaccinations is not nearly as bleak as it's being presented, and the conversation about why racial disparities do exist is certainly more complex than the flattened narratives about quote-unquote government mistrust. So let's start with the fact that we don't have complete data on race and vaccinations. Various states are keeping the data in various ways, and the CDC admits they also do not have complete data on race and vaccination. So just right there, it seems like making hard and fast generalizations in and of itself is something to be careful about. But with all those caveats noted, we certainly can learn from the data that is out there. 
The Kaiser Family Foundation has been doing consistent research into a range of factors regarding COVID, including race and ethnicity. Their most recent look at the issue estimated based on state-level data, which is the most complete, is that based off of the 44 states with strong data, they estimate 43% of black people have at least one dose of a COVID vaccine. But to give you a sense of the point I was making earlier about what the lack of data means, the Kaiser Family Foundation tracking poll, which has been asking people over time a range of different things regarding COVID, including asking people their race and if they're vaccinated, found that 65% of the black respondents stated that they had been vaccinated. Now, of course, that makes sense. The incomplete numbers undoubtedly means there's an undercount in general on a range of things, including the number of black people who have been vaccinated. And of course, with polling, there are other issues that impact it, where people live, how old they are, and so on, which all heavily impact the likelihood of whether you're vaccinated or not. But either way, the point still stands. If somewhere between 43% and 65% of black adults are vaccinated, it seems totally absurd to make any sort of argument that black people in general do not want to get vaccinated. Or as some seem to be saying, that black people are leading some sort of righteous resistance to vaccines that makes those promoting public health into some sort of racist. It's also worth noting here that the Kaiser Family Foundation has also detailed that, quote, between August 16th and September 7th, black and Hispanic people experienced a larger increase in vaccination rates compared to white and Asian people, narrowing the disparities in vaccination rates, end quote. Looking at the state level data, which, as I said earlier, is often more robust, is also notable, although it doesn't tell one single story. For instance, in Maryland, 58 percent of black people eligible for the vaccination are vaccinated. In Michigan, it's 32%. Massachusetts, 62%. D.C., 40%. Iowa, 28%. California, 52%. And Ohio, 40%, just to name a few. In Mississippi, that's the state with the highest percentage of black people, 47% of black people are vaccinated compared to 45% of whites. In Texas, with the largest raw number of black people, 40% of eligible blacks are vaccinated compared to 49% for whites. In Louisiana, 49% of blacks are vaccinated as compared to 47% of whites. Ultimately, you see where I'm going here. Making some sort of broad generalization about black people and vaccines is, quite frankly, a fool's errand. And if anyone is doing anything racist, it's the people who are trying to create some sort of anti-vaccine front out of black America to cover their deeply mistaken ideas about COVID-19 and vaccinations. And on that note, the same Kaiser Family Foundation tracking poll I mentioned earlier also asked people if they were, quote unquote, definitely not going to get the vaccine. 16% of black respondents said they would definitely not get the vaccine. 15% of whites said the same thing. Just for context, the top two categories that they measured there in terms of people saying that they were definitely not going to get it were people who were 18 to 29, 21% of whom said they were definitely not going to get it, and Republicans, 20% of whom said they were definitely not going to get a vaccine. The Kaiser Family Foundation also asked people a range of questions about why they were hesitant to get a vaccine. The way the questions are asked, it's not a ranking per se, but everyone is asked if they are worried about particular things. So the higher percentage of people answering that they are concerned gives you a better sense of broad trends in a community. And the issue of highest concern among black Americans who were polled was the fear that they, quote, might experience serious side effects, with 82% of respondents expressing worry over this. Second was a worry that, quote, the COVID-19 vaccines are not as safe as they are said to be. 
with 75% of people being concerned on that note. And the third was that, quote, the COVID-19 vaccine may negatively impact their fertility in the future, end quote, and with 56% expressing concern on that front. And fourth was the concern that they, quote, might need to miss work if the side effects of the vaccine make them feel sick for a day or more, with 55% expressing that concern. And these responses almost certainly provide at least some of the answer for the state-by-state -state disparities. To the extent people feel they have answers to these questions that are satisfactory, they are probably more likely to be vaccinated. So just to offer a few notes on this, who maybe some people who agree with that, who are feeling a little skeptical, these are all very valid concerns. As to the first, it is possible you will have some side effects. It's also possible that you won't. And in almost all cases, they are fairly mild. And more importantly, if you are not vaccinated and get COVID-19, you are far more likely to have the worst side effect possible, and that is to die. In Alabama, you are 48 times more likely to die if you are unvaccinated. Three people per 100,000 people are dying in Alabama of COVID-19 who are vaccinated versus 124 per 100,000 people who are dying who are unvaccinated of COVID-19. In California, you are 58 times more likely to die of COVID-19 if you are not vaccinated. In Arizona, you are 73 times more likely to die if you are not vaccinated and get COVID-19. In Georgia, you are 87 times more likely to die. In Texas, you are 85 times more likely to die. So once again, if you do not get the vaccine, you are significantly more likely to die of COVID-19 if you get it. And COVID-19 is spreading faster than ever. And the virus, this Delta variant, is in fact more virulent than it's ever been. As for the safety of vaccines, billions of people have gotten all of the various vaccines approved by the World Health Organization, which includes all of the vaccines available in the U.S., among others. There is no evidence of any sort that the vaccines are unsafe. Like with any medicine you will take, and like everything from birth control to chemotherapy, there can be side effects and risks. But again, the vaccines are safe. Just to give you some examples, if you're hesitant about save the U.S. government, Vietnam, socialist government, not necessarily the greatest friend of the United States, has approved the Pfizer vaccine for use. And Venezuela, definitely a country that is not in the good graces with the U.S. authorities, is participating in the COVAX mechanisms, which means that it may end up using some of the Pfizer vaccines. And right now, Fosun Pharmaceuticals in China is working with Pfizer to get the vaccine approved there, something that the state-run Global Times newspaper reports should happen imminently. So, not U.S. puppets or proxies there, and all three of those countries are aggressively promoting that everyone get vaccinated. And actually, the same thing is true of the Moderna vaccine with Vietnam and Venezuela. And it's also worth noting that despite expressing early skepticism, the government in Iran is now attempting to import both the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, and also encouraging people to be vaccinated. So again, nothing wrong with being concerned. Nothing at all. But when it concerns safety— there is no evidence that the vaccines are unsafe. And everyone from me to the CDC to the countries that are targeted for destruction by the U.S. government are not questioning the safety of the vaccines you are likely to get. And again, if you don't get it, you are far more likely to die. As for missing work, this is a serious issue. Roughly 30 million workers in the U.S. do not have access to one paid sick day off. So first off, without any doubt, we need paid sick leave for all workers, period. But certainly, if we want to increase vaccinations, and this should be a major demand placed on the government. 
And also, we should be providing far more robust support for people who get COVID to not only allow them to miss work, but to make sure that they don't lose income either. But since these are things that can't happen overnight, let me offer this to those who are feeling hesitant because of this issue. The reality is, if you get COVID, you will not only be more likely to miss work and lose income, you are also more likely to lose your job because you have to be out for an extended period of time, much longer than any side effects from any vaccination. And also, again, you are more likely to die. I'm vaccinated. I worked the day after my second shot. And I won't lie, it was rough. But I'm begging you, risk it. I don't want you to die. I know it's worrisome, especially when you work at a job where you probably can't call out, or at least not without losing money, but on balance, you are much safer health and income-wise getting the vaccine. I'm telling you, I've got the vaccine. My mom's got the vaccine. My sister, my brother, my cousins, my nieces, my nephews. We're all black. We've all gotten the vaccine. Everyone here at Breakthrough News, regardless of ethnicity, we got the vaccine. All of us are okay. All of us are very happy we got vaccinated. All of us want you to be vaccinated. I know you're hearing all sorts of things, but the reality is you are much safer on balance, health and income wise, if you get the vaccine. And that brings us to the closing point. I know some are feeling unsure around the vaccine mandate, but we can't lose sight that this is a serious public health crisis. In the 2019-2020 flu season, there are as many as 62,000 people who died from the flu. In 2018 to 2019, 34,000. Those aren't small numbers. But think about it like this. In 2020 and 2021, 656,000 people have died of COVID-19. Just to keep that even further in context, in 2019, 36,000 people in the U.S. died from car crashes. Also in 2019, 599,000 people died of cancer. I remember, 656,000 people have died of COVID-19 in little over a year. And it gives you a sense when you put it alongside some of those other issues that this is a massive health crisis. And the biggest risk to it getting worse is the unvaccinated population continuing to get the virus, to get very sick, which they're more likely to do, and to die, which they are more likely to do. And the larger the percentage of the population that's unvaccinated, the more likely new vaccine-resistant variants can develop, which will make the crisis even worse by making all of us more likely to be hospitalized and more likely to die from COVID-19. We can't let the government off the hook. And here at Breakthrough News, we haven't since day one. The government must provide total health care and income support for people who are sick and to make sure that they can get the vaccine. You should raise your voice around all these demands. But the fact of the matter is, mass vaccination is a common sense public health measure. You are far less likely to die if you were vaccinated. So let's drop all the straw men here and act accordingly. As we mentioned to you a few days ago, the impact of the Delta variant is certainly hitting the economy and, as we noted, was likely to mean elevated levels of hardship among working people. So I took a look at the most recent Household Pulse survey by the Census Bureau that measures just these facts, how much hardship there is in the economy through a range of questions on an ongoing basis. What did the most recent report say? 45% of adults in the United States 
roughly 113 million people, experienced either a little difficulty, some difficulty, or a lot of difficulty, very much difficulty is the way it's phrased there, paying their usual household expenses between August 18th and August 30th. 10% or 24 million people reported that they were in the very difficult to meet their household expenses category during this time period. When the same question was asked of adults living in households with children, 50% responded that they had difficulty paying their usual household expenses. When the same question was posed to those making less than $50,000 a year, 66% were having difficulty paying their usual weekly household expenses. So again, as we consistently say on this show, it is deeply misplaced to accept all of this rah-rah, the economy is coming back, it's all going to be good nonsense. The pain from the COVID-induced economic crisis and the deep pre-existing poverty in this country is very real. Eugene, uh, thank you so much. And again, I hope that people tune into your podcast, The Punch Out, uh, check out Breakthrough News. Uh, final question. When, when we go on social media, when we look at Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, uh, there's so many differing, opposing, contrarian points of view and, you know, each view seems to have like an army of support because in social media, you attract people who think the same thoughts that you think and they like it and they share it. And it seems to be like a thing. And, and so it amplifies, it magnifies. But when I look at the sort of scholarship behind the stuff that's being put out by people who are against vaccines, who are anti-vaxxers, against vaccine mandates, against masks or masking mandates, it seems to me that when you really look at their stories, they have really cherry-picked information. And if you have cherry-picked information, not the whole story, if you take things out of context, if you emphasize smaller facts or anomalies and make them seem to be the norm, uh, you can create your own impression about almost anything. But when it comes to public health, when it comes to saving lives, when it comes to keeping our families healthy and safe, when it comes to this kind of issue, I feel it's unconscionable and people who are cherry picking information just because it's going to attract more clicks in social media. I think that we just have to say, no, no, we, we don't have a, a feeling of like all things are okay. Everybody's opinion should be taken, you know, in the same way that it's important at some moments to really be crystal clear and take a clear position that if we're not getting vaccinations, if we're dissuading people from getting vaccinations, if we're dissuading people from wearing masks, if we're telling people to do things that are, as you put it, common sense health policies, if we're telling them to avoid those things, you know, we're doing such a disservice. I agree with you 100%. I mean, you know, there are some things that are debatable. There are some things that are not debatable. There are some things that are crystal clear from the facts. And I would really encourage people to, you know, look at the reality, which is that the preponderance of evidence proves that all of this is just complete, all this anti-vax stuff is just completely false. And I think this is a moment for leadership. And I think it's a time where sometimes people, you don't want to stand up and stand out. You don't want to be attacked. You don't want people to accuse you of being a, a tool of the big pharmaceutical companies or a, you know, whatever, evil authoritarian destroying people's freedoms and all those different pieces. 
I would just encourage people, don't be distracted. At the end of the day, the easiest way to keep people safe and to keep people alive is to be vaccinated. There's just no other piece. Billions of people have been vaccinated. Hundreds of studies have been done. There is literally no significant evidence that somehow you, that you should not get vaccinated, that the vaccines are not safe, that COVID-19 is not serious, which of course it very much is. And ultimately, we have to take some of these moments, especially moments that are this critical. I mean, if you think about it in the context of climate change, I mean, think about how long, including now, there were all these contrarian things about climate change and all these politicians, especially Republicans and others, would come out and say, well, if you look at this little one thing and you look at this and you look at that and maybe it's not carbon, maybe it's this, the world is naturally warming. And now all of that is seen as completely ridiculous because the reality is, is the preponderance of evidence and what we're seeing right in front of our eyes is clear. So look at the preponderance of evidence and look at what we're seeing right in front of our own eyes, that really COVID-19 is deadly, deadly serious, that the vaccines are the best protection against it, and that ultimately you will be relatively safe as it concerns the vaccines. Because let's remember about medical care, as I said, and I'll say it again, and I've said it many times, you know, everything from birth control to chemotherapy to Tylenol, there is some level of side effects, some level of risk, and that's something that we all assume in the context of our public health. But the bigger risk is getting COVID-19 where you are significantly more likely to die if you are not vaccinated. And let's not take that. And that's what these anti-vaxxers never talk about. They have everything to say other than the reality that you are more likely to die if you get COVID-19 and you're not vaccinated. They say everything but that. And that, to me, is the most telling fact. Eugene Perrier is the host of the podcast, The Punch-Out on Breakthrough News. He's also the host of the weekly live show, The Freedom Side, also on Breakthrough News. That airs every Thursday on youtube.com forward slash Breakthrough News. That's at 3 p.m. You're listening to The Socialist Program. We'll be back on Tuesday. If you enjoy this show, if you rely on this kind of independent programming, show your support by going to patreon.com forward slash the socialist program and becoming a subscriber. You've been listening to the socialist program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high quality news analysis and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.